This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Lisa Harding, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. It's so lovely to be with you, Cheryl. Lisa is coming to us live via Dublin. She has a background as a playwright. Her plays have been performed in Dublin and she was awarded an Irish Arts Council bursary and a Peggy Ramsey grant for playwriting. She's had short stories published in the Dublin Review, the Bath Short Story Award Collection 2014, and her story Counting Down was a winner in the inaugural Doolan Writers Weekend competition. Lisa is the author of one previous prize-winning novel, Harvesting. Her new novel, and this is what we're talking about today, Bright Burning Things, is about a failed actress struggling with motherhood and addiction and was listed as a book highlight for 2021 in The Guardian, The Observia, Gracia, Irish Times and the Irish Independent. I've got to tell you, it is a book that we have been fighting about in our office and meaning who's going to read it next. Who's got it? Are you going to bring it in tomorrow? <laughs> Where is it? Where is Bright Burning Things? I mean, wow. <laughs> really? That's interesting because it's a tough read though, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 At this time particularly. Well, um, I think motherhood is a tough gig. I'm not a mother. Which is interesting. And perhaps there's, um, you know, there are reasons for that when I see what I've unconsciously written on the page. <laughs> but yeah, it's a tough gig. And she's so isolated. Um, she's so, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's so on her own as well. And she's not so much a failed actress as a, an actress whose career has been stopped because of becoming a single mother. She was quite a successful actress in London, as was I, actually. That was my journey. I was a a stage actress for years. And when I stopped acting, I felt like I'd come off a drug. Yeah. And that that was kind of the starting place for this novel. Let me go back, go right back. And, you know, where you grew up, because I'm loving your accent, where you grew up and how it is, where the love of reading and writing came from. Okay, so I'm from Dublin. I lived in London for about 13 years as I was an actress over there, but I'm back 10 years. Um, The love of reading and writing, I think, like when I was younger, I used books to escape. Well, quite a stressful family situation growing up and, you know, was all, always had my head in some kind of book, actually. Can um, you talk so, about that? Well, we, we did grow up with addiction which I've written about in in this novel and explored it. And, you know, you don't realise when you grow up in something, you know, it's normal to you. But there was stress. There was always stress, you know, and excitement as well and kind of adrenaline. And But I did highs and lows. Exactly. Yes. And kind of magic and mania as well, you know, that, that I explore in the book and very imaginative creative mother I had she was I mean she she you know she was she was um 
difficult but wonderful and did tell us stories and used to make up stories and I definitely got my imagination from her and I do remember being obsessed with Winnie the Pooh and Alice in Wonderland and you know I was always in some kind of fantasy world which is a great escape hatch if you're feeling stressed. Yeah Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day um, who lives in San Francisco and uh, we were talking about the films that have been formative, you know, what was the first film you saw that really you really understood and what was the first book you read that really kind of, you know, had an impact on you? And mine was Charlotte's Web. What was yours? It's so beautiful. It's yeah, so I loved beautiful. Charlotte's Web. Such a beautiful book. Mine, well, it was Alice in Wonderland and it mm. was, like I do remember, you know, the extraordinary characters that are created in that world um, and the tumbling through to another realm. I think I actually reference it in Bright Burning Things I do and and it stayed with me, but the tumbling through and the shrinking into this other world and these extraordinary, you know, Mad Hatter and the the White Rabbit and just these amazing Dodo, these amazing creations. They, They are so extraordinarily imaginative and I guess exciting too and uh, you know a little bit um and I loved Narnia as well I loved the chronicles of Narnia but Alice I think is the one that stayed with me I I played Alice in school as well I played Alice in Wonderland so I think I had a you know I had a real love for her and all the wonderful characters in that in that underworld when did you start thinking about writing well I mean I wrote a lot when I was little and I like English was my favorite um, subject in school. So I always wrote when I was young. And then as I got older, I trained to be a dancer and I wanted to be a dancer. That was so I kind of stopped writing. I was a performer. I became a performer and I started, you know, I was speaking other people's words and dancing in shows. And then really my acting career was very frustrating, to be honest. You know, it's not easy as a woman, particularly as you start to age in your even age is ridiculous, but even in my 30s, it became difficult. So I'm in my 40s now and I really settled down to writing when I hit 40. Like I really kind of said, right, I want to make a go of this. I had written plays in my 30s and then I wrote my first novel when I hit 40. I'm writing my third now and I'm mid 40s. So I'm making up for lost time. Tell me the challenges of, I mean, you know, being a playwright and writing plays are very different to actually just simple word count, if you like, <laughs> of writing mm. fiction. I mean, was that, how was that for you? Yeah, it's, well, it was kind of easy in a sense because I went from writing plays to short stories. And my short stories were all the first person kind of monologue, you know, the I. And then, my first novel was two separate girls from different parts of the world, their first person experiences. My second novel is a very immersive first person, really a monologue. It's a kind of stream of consciousness. So I've just been using my training as an actor, you know, that kind of improvisatory first person, immediate immersive approach. So I've never, I was always intimidated at the thought of writing a novel But I haven't done that third person past tense, you know, omniscient narrator. I don't think that's my it's not my strength. So I do what I can do, which is voice. It's all about voice for me, really, so far. So far. And are you the approach to writing? I guess because nothing has been a regular nine to five for you. So how do you approach the craft of writing? 
Yes, the, the the fact of me never having a regular nine to five, I think, is is really good training. Um, but I mean, I've always had to do so many other jobs to keep alive. But the craft of writing, I studied the year I turned forty. I went back to do an MPhil in Trinity College in Dublin in creative writing. So I really immersed myself in study of prose and different stylists, and I've always been a big reader. So I think the more you read, you know. Yeah, not not necessarily the better you get, but it's really important to expose yourself to lots of different stylists. But I I was always drawn to voice. You know, I was always drawn to writers that could do that. Like even a really extreme writers like Nabokov, you know, who wrote Lolita, Catcher in the Rye, those kind of voices that were really distinctive. Like I, I've always loved that. And I think it just comes naturally to me to do that, actually, mm. to go right inside character and tell the story from that point. And talk to me about how your first book got published. Yeah, well, I didn't have an agent, which was which is great, you know, but in Ireland we have, as you know, it's a very literary little tiny country, but full of amazing writers. And we are very lucky in that we have some great literary presses that will accept unsolicited manuscripts, which is very unusual. Like it doesn't happen in London. I don't know about Australia. No, same. It's just very hard without an agent to get your book published. But I had written, um, my first novel was about sex trafficking in Dublin because I was involved in a campaign for many years, sex trafficking of young people, underage girls. And it was very hard to sell, as you can imagine, because marketeers were looking at it going, "Mm, that's (laughs) like, it's not, you know, it's not an easy prospect to sell. But this wonderful literary um, imprint in Ireland called New Ireland took it. And they did a wonderful job. You know, they got it to Gallimard in Paris and then it got picked up by a filmmaker. He, I don't know if you've heard of the Derry Girls, have you? The Irish? Yes, I have, yes. So that, that, that director is making my first book into a film. We're co-writing the, the screenplay. So he's gone from comedy to absolute tragedy. But yeah, so I was lucky, you know. I mean, it, it was sent out to many, many agents and the agents were like, no, because we can't imagine where we could place this. But now I have a wonderful agent. But that's how it happens often, isn't it? It's mm. very hard on your first book. Mm. And then if the first book kind of gains traction, then writers can get agents and then they're in a better place mm. to sell the second book. So that's mm. what happened for me. And how did you get your second agent? They approached you or did you approach them? No, again, it was one of those lovely serendipitous things. I was away doing, I do a lot of writers retreats and I was over in England at this beautiful centre called Arvon. If any of your listeners are listening, they're amazing. And they're in these old um, national trust houses all over England. And you can go and do these intensive weeks. And I've done quite a few of them. And there was a, a brilliant editor there called Ella Wakatama Alfrey, who does a lot of like beautiful books for Faber and Bloomsbury, actually, who I'm with, as you know. And she read some of my work, my second novel, and she said, I'd like to introduce you to Claire Alexander, who's my agent in London now. And that's how it happened. It was really lovely. Okay, so talk to me about the book, Bright Burning Things. Firstly, the seed of the idea, where did it come from? And then how did you execute that? Yeah, so the seed of the idea was that it was kind of a mixture of what I spoke about earlier, the fact that my acting career really was really difficult. I had a good acting career when I was younger and then it stalled big time in my 30s and I was very frustrated. And when I stopped acting, I had that, I genuinely had that feeling of like coming down off a drug. You know, I felt because I had 
being brought up in addiction. I really understand addiction. Um, I, but I felt like it was a similar charge. And my addiction was probably being on stage, getting attention, getting outside myself. You know, if I'm really honest, there was a lot of that in it. Mm. And when I stopped, I remember thinking there's this huge void and it's quite scary. And all these cold turkey and all these feelings, you know, that you could kind of channel into different characters. And but I also equally I knew it was quite bad for me. But the start of this novel was obviously it's, you know, there's it's it's the nature of addiction that it can attach to different things. And there was a period of (laughs) acting unsuitable men, you know, (laughs) but I personally never got addicted to alcohol. My family has, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family, but I think I had other addictions that I've kind of worked through in my 40s or had a good old look at. And I don't think people realize the charge of acting, though. It's an extraordinary thing. Like if you've been up that high, how do you level out? You know, it's very hard to do real life, actually. I, I think that, I mean, you know, I'm not an actor, but we do, I do lots of live segments for the better yeah. community. So we do a Facebook Live, we do, I've done a little bit of television in terms of book reviews and even recording podcasts. Now, it's minuscule compared to the feelings you're describing, but there is still a high and low involved. You know, mm-hmm. I do come off, you know, even when I do radio and I come off it and you're on a high. It takes mm-hmm. a, a few minutes, at least half an mm-hmm. hour, to come off that, doesn't it? Particularly it if does. you felt that it went really well as well. The ego charge, it's quite dangerous. Ruby yeah. Wax has written brilliantly about it. Yeah. You know, Ruby. Yes. Like she has written so, I mean, I've read all her books and the, just that she writes about that particular addiction to attention, the attention mm-hmm. drive. Now, that's not the same what you're describing, I think, but depending on where you're coming from in life, if you're constantly seeking that acclaim, it's quite, it's really destabilizing. Mm. And my character, Sonia, just has no center. You know, she's really ungrounded. She's desperately seeking approval. She doesn't know what to do with all her impulses. She's quite a lot of trauma that she hasn't looked at because she's been acting all her life. She hasn't had to, you know, and as you say, then when she becomes a single mother, well, she's totally ill-equipped because she didn't actually, her own mother had mental health issues that she doesn't remember because she died very young, but it's all there. So her unconscious is quite traumatized. So um, <laughs> very Irish story. <laughs> it's probably a very universal story, but turning to alcohol to kind of try to recreate the highs of her performing life and also to try to soothe herself. And of course it doesn't either. You know, over time, it erodes her. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It made me think, and I'm not a parent either, and I know that you're not, but we are children, you know, we understand motherhood. And I look around me, I mean, I, I spoke to this woman very recently um, called Mary Lee, who was, you know, came out of Darwin, very young age, and then ended up in London as a ballerina dancing for the Royal Ballet and had a child. Now she was married to a, a ballerina as well and gave up her career. Bang, wow. finished, 30. Yeah. Can you imagine all that? And yes, I know that men have that experience, but really it is a woman's story, isn't it? It really is a woman's story. And in, in Sonia's case, um, my character, she, you know, her partner, Howard, is a young, well, he's not so young. He's in his 30s. He's, a, he's an actor, a very ambitious actor. He doesn't get a huge amount of time in the novel at all, but he he doesn't want a child and he makes it very clear. Like he never, you know, he really doesn't want her to, to, to be a mother. And she kind of romanticizes the notion. She doesn't really grapple with what it means to be a mother alone. And she moves back from London to Dublin and she's quite estranged from her father. So she doesn't have a support circle, you know. And I have friends who are single mothers. I'm sure you do too. And, you know, it's extraordinarily difficult. And now we're looking at people in COVID. I mean, particularly in Ireland, as you say, because we we've had a long lockdown, a long, long, rainy lockdown. And there's a lot of alcohol abuse here. People are turning, you know, more and more and, just this intense isolation. Do you yeah. think with addiction, I mean, it seems to be cultural in Ireland. Is it? Is it mm. addiction that's cultural or is it the end? Uh, talk to me about that because I don't know, you know. Um, well, we think, like, it's very, as you know, it's very hard to pinpoint addiction, like where it comes from. It's, it's yeah. often generational. It's often, you know, some usually some kind of trauma in the lineage chemical of course but Ireland has a very traumatic history as you know of you know yeah. being colonized and our famine and the famine ships and and I do believe that that history of trauma I, I wonder as well about <laughs> the rain and, and the very yeah. gray skies seriously you know I think and so there's that side to it and then as you say there's the very uh, the Irish bonhomie and the Irish kind of crack and you know people sitting in pubs drinking Guinness and very little else to do but it's a huge part of our culture mm. um Asanya is not a pint drinker though you know she's she's that very dangerous stay at home isolated thinking it's white wine and it's all you know it's all very cozy for yeah. a while until it's taken over I've been reading the Gabriel Byrne um memoir I don't know mm. if you know that it's it's mm. very it's uh, no I really want to read it though yeah, yeah. and he uh what's it called it's called Walking with Ghosts Mm. And he talks obviously talks about Ireland a lot and he talks about religion a lot and the addiction of religion, I think. It's interesting to me because, of course, then he lives a large part of his life in the US and he talks about displacement and being an immigrant and being in exile and language that I wouldn't have, because my parents are Lebanese-Australian and that is mm. their experience, but I wouldn't have thought that, going from an English-speaking country, I mean, it's just so naive of me, to another English-speaking country is as traumatic. Oh, I right? think you're as, right. As, say, yeah. my parents who, who came from Lebanon and, you know, six children, they couldn't speak the language, right? Um, yeah. But he is traumatised by it. And I wonder, uh, it got me thinking, I really enjoyed it, 
it got me thinking about how where even where we live makes us the person that we are. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Like I definitely, when I was in London and by my 13th year in London, I was desperately homesick. Now it's only across the water. So you'd like, <laughs> like, and if you say, you know, same language and everything, but yeah, there's something about Ireland, people, wherever you grow up, I guess, but the land in Ireland, you know, I was craving, I really was really beginning to crave mountains and sea, you know, in London, it's so concrete and that's what I wanted when I was younger, ironically. You know, you want the big city and the lights. And and then as I've got older, I've wanted the land. I've wanted, you know, to, to be able to see nature. I don't know if you ca- ever came across an Irish writer called Nuala O'Fuelon, did you? I have, actually. I haven't read any, but I've seen it. She's yeah. an extraordinary writer. I mean, she's passed I'm going to write now. that down, yeah. Amazing, amazing. A memoirist. And her memoir, Are You Somebody?, I remember reading in my mid-30s and being so incredibly moved because she described living in London for decades and then moving back to Ireland and getting a little rescue dog and living by the sea. And I started to cry. I was like, I want a dog. I couldn't get a dog in London. I want to be by the sea. And I did. I came home and I've got a little rescue dog and live close enough that I can walk to the sea. So, yeah, but she's an extraordinary writer. And she wrote, she was the kind of the first person to talk openly about her mother's alcoholism and you know it caused shockwaves because in our country that was not talked about that's one of the biggest taboos was maternal alcoholism yeah so she she was very open and honest and I was very moved by her book Mm. and inspired actually so talk to me you know it is fiction and I get into trouble you know, I've spoken to over 400 authors, I think, in the last few years, but I get into trouble when I start to talk about fiction and truth, <laughs> fiction and autobiography. I'm not allowed, often authors <laughs> say to me, that's not me. And I, and I know that. I mean, I'm a huge fiction reader and I know that. And, and authors don't write the same story every book, but they do write it from their perspective. Of course. Yeah. Right. So there yeah. is always you in it, isn't there? Yeah. And I, just from talking to you now, I see you in Sonia. I really do. And it's, (laughs) yes, she's flawed. Yes, she's all of these things. But there is the self in it to a certain extent, isn't there? Yeah, I know. I agree. It's a personal story. It is a personal story. Well, yes, but what's interesting is, yes, and not yet, but my first novel had elements of me too, but it was about something that you would imagine is so far from my life sex trafficking. Right. But yes, there were absolutely elements of me in both those girls and you can tap into things. But this one. Yeah, this one. This one is closer to home. And I think I didn't want it's not memoir. And I did that for a reason, because I think I wanted Sonia to be close to me as well. So she's a composite. And I imagined myself into that place, you know, the the, the Irish rehab with the religious very you know, these are free rehabs that are operating in Ireland today and they're only offered by the Catholic Church, actually. The state doesn't offer any free rehab in Ireland. Wow. And I have someone very close to me who's been in and out of these places. And private rehab in Ireland is ridiculously expensive if you don't have health insurance. So, yeah, I took experiences from somebody I love very much, but also kind of imagined myself into that position so you also understood it I mean I I hadn't spoken to you when I read it and I thought wow she has lived this to some extent she has seen it 
Yeah. Oh, seen as absolutely. I mean, it was yes. yeah, I was born into it. But I okay. also, when I was younger, you know, as I say, I became an actress, but I was quite mad. I was quite wild in college. I'm actually writing my my now my college story next, the third one. But I was quite wild just for a couple of years, thankfully. Because I met somebody very young who went into AA very young, would you believe it, 21. And we were both wild. So I had wild years from kind of 17 to 21 where I did experience blackouts. I did experience that feeling of just wanting to be out of your head the whole time. It's what I knew and it was very exciting. But I was lucky because early I got exposed to somebody who found recovery. And then I started to look at my relationship to alcohol, my family's relationship to alcohol. And also, I obviously don't have a chemical dependency because I didn't, I was able to put it down. I mean, I drink now, see, yeah. so, I, so I don't have the yeah. ism. Yeah. Same, same. I mean, I, I, you know, I can take it or leave it. I do enjoy it when I'm drinking it. But yeah. I, I feel that it's a bigger tool than just entertainment, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's an fun. absolute addiction and compulsion for some yeah. people. Yeah. And the more I've learned about it and being at many, you know, family days learning about the impact I guess of alcoholism on the person themselves and the people around them because it is a family illness you know and the little boy in bright burning things is deeply affected and he's only just turning five and already he's his anxiety is sky high and he's you know he's in other he's creating other worlds with fire and he's and he has his little, well, I mean, he's a beautiful relationship with his rescue dog, which, you know, dogs are wonderful, aren't oh, they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're just, they're just, and they can be amazing in stressed homes. You know, they soak up. And my Herbie in the book, he's one of my favorite characters. He's this big, beautiful softie. He kind of just settles the two of them. And, you know, he's little Tommy's best friend. So, there is magic in the mad little family as well. There is a lot of love as well. Talk to me about mothering because it's your experience of being a daughter, but it's also what you've seen. And I'm the same. I've observed it and I've observed the toughness of it, whether you're a single mother or not, just the constant and the judgments. And, you know, it is really a very, very tough role. Talk to me about your observations. Sonia probably isn't the best mother. <laughs> Sonia isn't the best mother, but she she has a a huge heart and a lot of, a lot of love. But she's a lot of unresolved trauma. And I think, as you said earlier, you know the role, the the parental role, if you're a man and if you're a woman, are so entirely different. I often thought if I was born a man, I would love to be a father, but I never wanted to be a mother because I felt like the responsibility was so intense. And you know, and we we had we had damage in in our. I mean, who doesn't? Let's oh, face exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I think I needed, where I'm concerned, I knew that I needed to grow up, and it took me a long time, and to kind of learn to handle myself. I didn't want to bring a child into all those feelings and you know all that unresolved stuff. I knew actually, um, because what what I'd witnessed. And then I do look around me and think, oh, you know, it's it's the most important job in the world and we're so ill-equipped. None of us are taught anything about parenting in school. Of course, we're not taught anything about anything that's useful in school, are we? But, you know, any of those tools, you think, wow, like we're not taught anything about looking after ourselves first, because I think that's the thing about being a mother. This expectation around being selfless 
being apple pie kind of domestic goddess like it's it's so and particularly my mother's generation that was a really tough tough generation because in Ireland it's only one generation but she wasn't allowed work which is extraordinary in 1970s Ireland there was no contraception no abortion so the amount of shotgun weddings in Ireland and young young parents that were not equipped you know and I have a lot of compassion for them now because they didn't, there was there was no choice in the in the matter, and then they're forced into these roles, and they're not, you know, they're not they're not able, they're not equipped. And mm. but I think very early on, I I knew I wanted a different path. Oh, it scared exactly me. Same. Yeah, exactly the same. And there are those women who really wanted to have children and couldn't. And my heart mm. goes out to those. But then there are people like you and I. I mean, it was a very conscious decision for me not mm. to have them. But I look back at my mother as well. I mean, and, you know, I, we, growing up, I mean, when I was an adult maybe, I asked her, you know, oh, you must be so proud to have six children, you know, because we're as cohesive as a family can be. You know, we all still live near each other and, you know, sure we fight, but, you know, it is lovely mm. to be part of a big family. And I said, she said, do you know, if I had my time over again, I wouldn't have had six children. Yeah. You know, yeah. She had no life for herself. Yeah. No, I I often wonder in a a joking way, but I do sometimes wonder, you know, if we believe in reincarnation, I've spoken to some of my friends and I have this vision of me as a a farmer's wife in Ireland, you know, in the (laughs) 50s. I swear, I mean, those women had absolutely no agency, none. They couldn't even say no to their husbands. And, you know, 13 kids, like Mm -hmm. my grandparents' generation, my granddad comes from 11 kids. Like, what was that life like for the mum? And it is extraordinary how much things have changed in two generations, one generation even here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of my friends. I was at a school reunion recently and of there are eight of us that are very, very close. Four of us are not. That's extraordinary. Four of us are not mothers. Mm, it is extraordinary. Um, so you've talked about that you're starting uh, the next book. <laughs> it's about another part of your life. <laughs> Mm. Uh, talk to me about that well you see it's in process so I can never really put words to it I mean I'm enjoying it it's lighter than the one than bright burning things and the previous one harvesting it's it's kind of got a a dark sense of humor definitely parts of me and you know the, the 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 craziness but there's a kind of a revenge drama it's at the centre of it, it's like these group of kids that's almost cult-like. They get drawn to each other because they all come from very dysfunctional homes. And then there's this kind of, yes, they're trying to enact revenge on parents, individualise themselves. But it is quite funny. It doesn't sound funny, but it is quite funny, I think. Whereas Bright Burning Things, I don't know, did you find Sonia funny? I did at times, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Because you needed the humour, you needed the lightness, didn't you? Mm. Otherwise it would have been too dark. Yes. Beautifully written. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. Uh, Thank you for chatting with us today. Congratulations. Keep writing. And we look forward to the next one. Yeah, no, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.